It's time for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Welcome to episode 566 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This week it's another great doubleheader episode, and it features conversations with Austin Huff and INJ Culbert. Everything kicks off with Austin Huff, who has a Kickstarter underway for his The Masters miniseries that will conclude this Friday, December 16, at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time. It's described this way. The comic book story inspired by some of the most famous artists of the 20th century continues with issues 2 and 3. We discuss who the various characters are, how Austin has been coordinating working with this excellent team of creators, and what we can expect from them all in the future. Then everything wraps up with my interview with INJ Culbert about his terrific story from Burger Book's Dark Horse Comics called Salamand. And it's available this month in bookstores around the world just in time for holiday gift giving. It's described this way. It's a uniquely evocative graphic novel about family loss and the freedom of art. It focuses on a bereaved young artist who's seeking to heal his grief in a world of art revolutionaries, espionage, and the secret police. We explore who the various people are, how they relate to Ian's own experiences, and what we can expect from him in the future, so don't miss it. There's a lot to get to in this episode, so let's get on with the show. It's great to welcome to the podcast Austin Huff, the creator of a fascinating series called The Masters, which has a Kickstarter for number two and three going on right now called The Classic Hero versus Villain Comic. How's it going, Austin? Couldn't be better, Wayne. I'm on your show tonight. <laughs> well, the, people always get on me because I forget. I get so involved talking about the, the product that I don't talk about when it's going to conclude. But this project will only be funded if it reaches its goal by Friday, December 16 at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time. But the good news is you don't have to worry about that. Austin, you have – looks like you've doubled your goal. So we've, congratulations. We've doubled our goal. Thank you very much. But we'd really like to twip, triple and quadruple and quintuple and so on and so forth, that goal, right? Right, right. Well, let me let me get all the congratulating done all at one time. You also got a project we love at Kickstarter. Yes, thank you. You also got your, you also funded in the first 24 hours, which is always a, uh, you don't have to have the uh, refresh, 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 checking right. to see what's going on. You just basically now can sit back and say, I, I don't have to worry quite so much. Correct. Isn't that nice? Boy, that's a change of pace. Uh, that's There's a lot of people who would love to be in that situation. So Right. So, okay. So, we've talked about – let me – I'll read this real quickly. It says, comic book inspired by some of the most famous artists of the 20th century continues with issues two and three. Talk about 
you were telling me before we started recording that this is your very first comic. So again, congratulations on that. Talk about what is going, what the book is about and, and, and why you're doing the book that you are. Sure. Um, I'm most known for my uh, collecting of uh, Mego action figures from the 1970s and being uh, a, a, a prolific Mego action figure customizer, Wayne. So I have created in the last 25 years no fewer than 650 different custom Mego action figures in my collection. And um, they were all exclusively DC and Marvel superheroes and supervillains. That's the comic books I collected as a child, and those are the characters I've always loved. So one day, you know, you make 250 different custom action figures of specifically Marvel and DC characters, you kind of run out of uh, options. There's only so many variations of Batman or Spider-Man that you can create. Would you agree? I, I completely agree because I've seen those action figures where he's got, Batman's got his snow skiing outfit on or something. <laughs> and I'm going like, oh, I don't want that. You know, I don't, I don't want those crazy costumes. I, I want his costume happy with it. But uh, so you made, did you, what kind of variants did you make? Oh, you name it, I have it. You know, Iron Man is a great one. Um, Arctic Iron Man, um, Stealth Iron Man, Silver Centurion, um, you, you name it. I, I, I have just, you know, a dozen different Iron Men. I even made a custom Hall of Armor playset. <laughs> but, you know, I, I got to a point where I was running out of ideas. I was running out of characters and variations that I wanted to make. And all of a sudden I remember, this is about three years ago, all of a sudden I remembered um, there was a character that I developed on my own that I thought would be really great for the old 1966 Adam West Batman TV show. And that was a character inspired by the famous surrealist artist Salvador Dali. Mm-hmm. And I named him, and again, this is all in my head, I named him Surreal Ordeal, <laughs> Surreal Ordeal, and I gave him the, the set of magic paint where he had this palette of paints and a brush and whatever he painted on the wall. Now, if, if you know Salvador Dali, his, his paintings are just absolute mind-bending experiences. So whatever he painted would become a portal to another dimension because of these magic paints. Mm-hmm. So if he wanted to rob a bank or rob a jewelry store or an art gallery or something, his escape would be just painting something on the wall and jumping into it. Now, of course, he's going into this world that he is the only one who is familiar with it. No, you know, jewelry store uh, cop or, you know, police officer or, you know, museum security guard is going to go in after him. You'd be lucky if you could even get a superhero to go after him. Mm-hmm. So I thought about this character, you know, years and years and years ago. And then when I ran out of ideas for custom action figures, he popped back into my head and I put him together and I really liked the action figure a lot. And I said, wow, you know, this guy needs a whole team of villains to go with. So I put together the rest of these characters based on some of my favorite artists of the 20th century, including the clerk inspired by Rene Magritte, graffiti inspired by 
um, Keith Haring, panorama inspired by the famous photographer Ansel Adams, and Monsieur Petit Renard, which means Mr. Little Fox in French, and he's inspired by uh, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, who was famous for his uh, paintings and posters of the Moulin Rouge. And I gave them all different powers that related to their um, their art, except for Renard. I gave him, I made him a failed artist who became a master assassin because everybody was bullying bullying him. But you could read about that in uh, in one of the issues. I have a who's who type pages all laid out for everybody to get to know. And then I wanted to. You know, I got all these characters and I wrote all of these backstories for them because once I created the action figures, I couldn't really post them online because nobody would know who they were. <laughs> they were my characters, so I had to give them some kind of an interesting backstory. So next thing I know, I, I find that I'm writing these backstories and I'm like, wow, you know, I've got a pretty good idea for a comic book. Next thing I knew, I was writing a comic book. <laughs> and originally... I made it to be um, a Batman story, and I was going to pitch it to DC. I wrote a story in the in the mold of the old Brave and the Bold from the 1970s, the old Jim Aparo art, you know, uh, from the 70s. Right. So Batman and a guest hero would get together, and they would fight a bad guy. They would lose initially. But at the end, they would come back together and defeat this guy. They'd figure out how to win. Well, the the story I thought was pretty good. I showed it to an artist friend of mine who worked at DC at the time. And he said, wow, this is really great. I think you could actually show this or pitch this to DC, and they might be interested. And you know, he told me that he would introduce me to the publisher of DC Comics at the time. And, you know, he wouldn't put in a good word for me or anything, but what he would do is at least make the introduction. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, two weeks later, when I was to be introduced uh, in, in February or March of 2020 at the C2E2 convention in Chicago, oh. the publisher of DC Comics was let go. Uh, COVID uh, put its chokehold on the world. And I was left with this, you know, script that, you know, a couple of guys from DC Comics that I had talked to said, hey, you know, this is pretty good. I was just left with it, you know, sitting on my desk. What am I going to do? And I decided that, you know what? If if these guys think it's it's worthy of being published, I'm going to publish it myself. And I incorporated Power Comics as a tribute to Power Records from the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And I changed all of the DC heroes that I had into similar powered um, Golden Age public domain heroes. I went out and I recruited as many artists as I could that were interested in what I was doing. And I found, well, to date, I have found close to 50 that are doing something on this project, whether doing covers, interior pages, special posters for the project, whatever it might be. And I, I put together this five-issue story called The Masters. I named the book after the group of villains 
because I always felt that, you know, you have Superman 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and Spider-Man 1 and 2 and 3. And the James Bond movies were always cool because they, they kind of told you who the villain was in the title. Dr. No, Goldfinger, and so on and so forth, right? The man right. with the golden gun. So I wanted to make the name of the book, the series, the name of the bad guys. And that's what I did. They're all master artists and they're all master thieves. And together they make up the masters. And the big twist in the story is finding out who the villain is behind the masters. Okay. Um, according to the Kickstarter page, it looks like the masters are Laughing Head, Dead Rags, the Green Mummy, the Wolfman, and the Horror Frankenstein. Is that is that the masters or is that some of them? No. No, those guys, what we did with the first issue of the masters, okay, this Kickstarter is for issues two and three. This issue, issue number two, we introduce the heroes. The first issue of the Masters was all villains. We were laying the groundwork for, you know, why is it called the Masters? Who are the Masters? Who's behind the Masters? What are they doing? And it was just all villain. It was heavy, heavy villain. And there was just maybe one or two panels that even alluded to the fact that there were going to be superheroes trying to stop them from committing their crimes. Okay. So in issue number two, we bring in the main uh, protagonist of the story, Black Owl, who was a very popular hero back in the 40s. Um, even Simon and Kirby worked on the Black Owl for prize comics back in the day, if memory serves. And we resurrected these Golden Age heroes, Black Owl being, you know, the number one guy. He's the leader. He's kind of like the Batman of the story. And in this issue number two, what we did was we wanted to give, you know, the first eight pages or so to introducing the black owl to show the reader, you know, just how tough he is. And what we did was we resurrected some old golden age villains that he used to fight back in the day, including the laughing head, the green mummy, Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman. Hmm. So I recruited Tom Morgan who did a lot of work for Marvel Comics back in the late 80s and 90s. He's been working for Disney for about the last 20 years or so. And I was able to persuade him to get back into the comic book world for a little bit. He took all of these villains and reimagined them. He recreated them. And he did the cover to issue two, at least the, uh, the alternate cover to issue two, along with the first eight pages of, of issue two. He even took it so far as that he wrote the script for the first eight pages. He was so excited to be on the project. Wow. Wow, that's something. Now, uh, so who are the masters as far as the first issue go? They are Surreal Ordeal, The Clerk, Graffiti, Panorama, and Monsieur Petit Reynard. Okay, so the, those are the ones that we see in the first issue, and they also come back in the second. Second and third, correct. Okay, so there's, there's, if I read this correctly, there's five issues in the first arc, right? There's five issues in the Masters, correct. 
We're doing a Kickstarter for issues two and three. And once that's done, we're probably going to wait a couple of weeks and then do the Kickstarter for the final issues four and five. We had some delays getting issue number one out. And because we were having delays getting the first issue out, we were actually able to get, you know, most of the work done on issues two, three, four, and five. So okay. we thought, you know what, why should we do a, a Kickstarter for each issue when we have almost all of them ready? We'll probably be able to get them all completed, kickstarted, printed, and out to people. My guess is by the end of January. Wow. That's fast. Now, on the Kickstarter page, you list all the creators who are involved in this project. And, boy, you've got a, a lot of good people involved. Uh, Al Milgram, uh, Mike Grell, Joe Staten, Greg LaRoque. Uh, Alex Saviak, who we see down in Florida where I live all the time, Romeo Tangal, Bob Hall, uh, uh, Tom Grummet, who I've, I've met, Bart Sears, who is a great artist. Um, they're all great artists. So Jimmy Palmiotti, uh, several more and involved in there. I, we could spend the rest of the, uh, the, the interview talking about who all those good people are. Absolutely. How, how did you get all those people involved? What, did, did some of them volunteer? Did you approach them? How did you do that? Well, what I did was, you know, I, I, I started talking to all of the people that I knew in the business and around the business. I have a bunch of friends who have published their own comic books. I have uh, friends who have worked for DC and Marvel Comics. And I just picked everybody's brain. I said, hey, what do you think I should do here? What do you, how, how do I get this guy? How do I get that guy? And I laid out a plan to simply get my favorite artists to do the covers for the comic books. And the interior pages, I would just get people of, you know, equal uh, talent, but on a lesser pay scale to do those pages. And I reached out to a, a fellow I had met a, a number of years ago, and we had become friendly from, you know, meeting at shows. You know him is Joe Rubenstein. Mm -hmm. And I sent him an email one morning. I'm an early riser, so I probably sent it to him. I'm in Chicago, so I probably sent it to him, you know, 5.30 a.m. my time, maybe 5, something like that. And within, like, minutes, he had responded. And, and what I asked him was, hey, I've got a few guys here that I want to ask to do some covers for me. I've got this idea for a comic book. Can you put me in touch with Alan Weiss, Carrie Gamble, and Ron Wilson? Wow. All three I knew were friendly with Joe. Joe's, well, Joe's worked with everybody, but I knew that he was friendly with these three guys, and they're three of my all-time favorites. Joe responded right away. He said, Austin, this sounds cool. Send me an email that you'd like me to send these guys, and I'll send it to them on your behalf. What more could I ask for, right? Wow. Mm -hmm. The next day... I receive an email from Alan Weiss. Alan Weiss happens to live in Chicago, not too far from me. And he says, hey, I, I think this is a really interesting project. I love all of the artists. Toulouse-Lautrec is probably my favorite artist of all time. 
I love Salvador mm-hmm. Dali, et cetera, et cetera. He said, here's my phone number. Give me a call at uh, 6.30 this coming Sunday night. And I'm like, okay. So I get on the phone with Alan, and we end up talking for about three and a half hours. At the end of the conversation, he was telling me that he loved the project and that he was all in to do a cover for me. And I said, that's great. And then he said, can I ask you one favor? And of course, I'm thinking, what kind of favor can I do for Alan Weiss, right? (laughs) He says, you have all of the chapters broken down by villain, right? And I said, yeah, surreal ordeal as a chapter and so on and so forth. He's like, can I do an interior chapter? Can I do the interior chapter with the Toulouse-Lautrec-inspired villain? And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, this wasn't part of the script. This wasn't, I'm like, you know, I was going to get somebody else to do it, you know, blah, 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 blah. And of course, I didn't say this to him. Mm -hmm. I just thought, how do you say no to Alan Weiss? So (laughs) I said, yeah, man, sure. So we talked for a little bit longer. And the next morning, I woke up to an email from Alan with sketches of how he would draw the Toulouse-Lautrec character. I nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> I had only ever seen my, my characters, the master's characters, in action figure form, because that's how I made them. Mm-hmm. So here is Monsieur, Penny, P- Monsieur Petit Reynard, drawn by Alan Weiss. And I, I'm like, wow, this is, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and along with the email was a note that said, hey, I hope you like this image. You mentioned that you were going to team up the black, team the black owl up with another superhero in this chapter. You mentioned it was going to be a character named Twister. And then he said, I've done some research on Twister. He did this overnight, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, would you let me like recreate Twister and change his costume and do some things and show you some ideas I have. And again, I'm like, who am I to say no to Alan Weiss? <laughs> so the next morning, all of a sudden in my inbox, I get images of his reimagined Twister character. <laughs> and all of a sudden it hit me. Wayne, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was going to approach all of my favorite artists with the offer of a cover. They choose their villain, and they get to recreate, reimagine one of the four remaining Golden Age superheroes that I had picked out for them to fight. Hmm. Next thing I knew, I was getting Ron Wilson. I was getting Alex Saviak. I was getting Val Merrick. I was getting Arvel Jones. And... Every single one of them said, hey, you know, why don't you call this person? And why don't you call this person? The next thing I knew, I was getting Bob Hall to do some pages. I was getting Tom Grummet to do some pages. I was getting Bart Sears to do a cover and Stephen Butler to do a cover and Mike Grell to do a cover and Joe Staten to do a cover. And we all, it just, it just, it was like dominoes falling, Wayne. It was unbelievable. Hmm. 
So how did you keep track of them? Did you kind of, you know, uh, like write down who wanted to do what character and where in the story it fell? Yeah, absolutely. I put together a spreadsheet, listed all of the, the issues, listed all of the pages, broke everything down by chapter and page and panel, and, you know, made a list of, okay, Alan Weiss is going to pencil and Andrew Peepoy is going to ink him and Val Merrick's going to pencil and Joe Rubenstein's going to ink him and Al Saviak's going to pencil and Al Milgram's going to ink him and so on and so forth. Wow. Well, so um, it sounds like quite a project to keep. Uh, did, did you run to anybody, two people who want to do the same thing? You know what? No. I didn't. Huh. That's an interesting question because I was worried about that. It was funny because Alan originally took um, Reynard, and then I think the next guy to come on board was actually Bob Hall, and he picked the Ansel Adams-inspired character, but then he had to back out because of prior commitments. Um, so I was able to, Alan Weiss recommended Val Merrick, the co-creator of Howard the Duck. Hmm. So I get a hold of Val and I say, hey, Val, this is what I'm looking to do. Would you be interested? And he's like, oh, yeah. He's been amazing to work with, an absolute wonderful, wonderful human being. And um, he took over that. Ron Wilson was like, oh, yeah, man, I really like that uh, clerk guy, the guy who can, you know, duplicate himself or or replicate himself. And Al Saviuk was attracted to the graffiti character right away. And uh, Arvel Jones wanted the Salvador Dali character inspired character so there was never a oh no you can't have that one ron wilson already got it you know what i mean <laughs> so knock on knock on wood that worked out well wow. and, then, and then everybody else that came in i had some people come in and have to they had to back out for various reasons but there was always somebody else who was waiting in the wings to jump on you know <laughs> the 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 big hero on issue number two has been greg LaRoque. And he came in when one of the artists who was working on issue two, who had a huge chunk of issue two, he had about 19 or 20 pages. He had a, I mean, it was like if, if he didn't have bad luck, he'd have no luck at all, this guy. Mm. Um, and he had to bow out and he hated doing it. And I hated to lose him, but I know we'll work together again in the future. There's no doubt about it. But mm. Joe Rubenstein is like, hey, man, why don't you give Greg LaRoque a call? And I have to tell you, there's been nobody easier to work with on this project than Greg. He has just been phenomenal. He, all of his pages, all of his pages on time or sooner. um, He worked with um, both Joe Rubenstein and Al Milgram to get them all inked on it in a timely manner. So, you know, he gave, you know, the first eight pages to Joe and he gave the last eight pages to Al kind of a thing. Um, and they're they're all exquisite. And then he worked really closely with uh, the two different colorists we had for his pages to advise them on how how what kind of look and feel he was looking for. Hmm. Yeah, so I can't say enough good things about Greg. I, I would work with him every day of the week and twice on Sundays. <laughs> Now, of course, you're working with the hero that I, the, the superhero that I have always liked, and he's actually getting a lot of play uh, because he's public domain. Uh, apparently, you're not the only one working with him. 
and that's the black owl. Yep, you are correct. He's, he's getting around this guy. Uh, I, I I did a little history, I, I had some research on him a while back, and he actually stopped being the black owl, the original guy, and then another guy came in and became the black owl when the black owl's <laughs> Children ended up being uh, become superhero. I think it was Yankee, Yankee Doodle and Dandy or something. Yeah, Yankee Doodle and Dandy, something like that. You are correct. Yeah, and so the, he went on to do something, but somebody else came back to do the Black Owl and stuff like that. Right, absolutely. And uh, from from what I know now, I have found two other creators with their own versions of Black Owl that has come out that have come out as recent as you know two years ago, three years ago tops. Mm-hmm. And they're fantastic. They are awesome variations of the Black Owl. All three are so unique and so fun that, you know, I I want to support the other two guys as well. What I'd love to do is get a hold of these other guys. I met one of them at a Comic-Con in suburban Chicago a few months ago. I want to get us all together and do some kind of a multiverse meeting of all of the Black Owls. Crisis on Infinite Black Owls. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Because I, I, what was it that attracted you to the character? I was just sort of interested in that. To the Black Owl? Yeah. I felt he was most like Batman. You know, you have to remember, the, the characters that I picked, the superhero characters I picked, were the superhero characters that I were most fond of, that I had the fondest memories of being in the old Brave and the Bold, you know, the ones that were written by Bob Haney and all the art was done by Jim Aparo. Mm -hmm. So the comic books that I remember the most having, and I probably still have the original issues of these somewhere in a long box somewhere, are um, Batman teaming up with Green Arrow, Hawkman, Red Tornado, The Atom, and Elongated Man. Hmm. So that's how I did the story. So I have my original versions, and they were going to go up against these DC superheroes led by Batman. Well, I had to go, I didn't have to, but I chose to go to the public domain to find superheroes that were those DC characters, essentially counterparts. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I wanted to do it that way, instead of just create my own characters is because I have no credibility, Wayne. I'm just some toy maker who came up with the story and a bunch of, of cartoon characters Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and nobody knows who they are. Nobody knows who I am. I had to build some kind of a foundation and I felt the way to do that was to go into public domain and grab characters that even had a little bit of a following to them. And Black Owl was one of them. Mm-hmm. So well, obviously, <laughs> Black Owl is basically the Bruce Wayne Batman character of the story. Arrow, of course, replaces Green Arrow. Mm-hmm. And from my research, the red hooded arrow that I use uh, history tells me that this was the first comic book archer, uh, you know, superhero that 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 existed. Oh, really? Wow. That's that's what I you know found through my research. Um, Airman 
he's a guy with wings. He looked a lot like Hawkman and, you know, Angel and, you know, what other winged superhero you find in DC and Marvel. Um, Twister, he had these cyclone powers. Now, he wasn't an android like the Red Tornado, but the cyclone powers were what I was going for, and he was the best fit. I found this character called Plymo the Rubber Man, who only had uh, one appearance in the comics ever. It was back in like 1942 or 43. It was in a comic book called uh, CMO Comics, I believe. One appearance, it couldn't have been more than five or six pages. You know, it was one of those books that had like 10 or 12 stories in it, right? Right. And Plymo the Rubber Man, he was a circus performer. Well, boy, oh boy, that really gives me a lot of room to grow this character if I want to do anything else with him. Mm -hmm. So I grabbed him. He replaced Elongated Man. And then I found a character called the Fly Man, who I think only had two comic book appearances in the 40s. And he replaced the Atom because he had the ability to shrink. Hmm. So that's why I came up with these guys. You know, I've had people say, well, why aren't there any female heroes? Why aren't there any this or that? Well, first of all, because it's my story. And secondly, it's because I chose all of these characters that I have this fondness for, this affinity for, from my childhood. You know, I could describe to you exactly the Brave and the Bold comic book that that guest starred the Atom or elongated man or hawk man or red tor i can see the covers in my mind right now and and that's the direction i went wow very cool because you know i'm sure people these days would want diverse characters and women characters and all those kinds of things but you know there, there's plenty of time for that you don't have to only do you know you can you can do a second mini series and introduce other characters you don't have to only do one there's, there's, plenty of, there's plenty of time for all kinds of things, Wayne. I mean, you know, after the Masters, we've got a bunch of stuff on the drawing board. Um, we're looking at doing stuff with other public domain characters. We're looking at spinning off some of the characters in the Masters. Each of the superheroes could have their own title. We could team them up again for a regular title, almost like a Justice League or Avengers uh, title. Um, so there, there's all kinds of things. We're, we're looking at doing things that um, what we're trying to do is whatever what, what we're trying to do, what we have on the drawing board, the plan is to no matter what we do, we connect all of these things together. Like they all come back to the Power Comics universe where the Black Owl is the centerpiece. Mm -hmm. wow. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. So it's almost like we have this humongous family tree where everybody is inter interconnected, almost like a six degrees of separation thing. So if you call the bad guys the masters, what do you call the heroes team? Well, at the end of the story, they get together and say, wow, you know, we did a pretty good job here and uh, maybe we should stick together. And they come up with a couple of different names that aren't really good. And then they come up with the name, the Power Core. Ah. Uh. 
Very good, very good. Oh wow, all kinds of good stuff going on. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm I'm curious too. Before and again, I want to say people always say I don't say this enough that the project will only be funded if it reaches its goal by Friday, December sixteenth, at twelve oh one a.m. Eastern time. And uh, you're past your goal already, but we when you said you want to reach the triple place, so we want to get to that. Oh yeah, we um, definitely we definitely want to increase uh, this this amount of money. You know, every time you do a Kickstarter. Nobody ever puts the real goal they want. Every goal is always on the low side because so many people out there are leery of donating or backing a Kickstarter or any kind of crowdfunding because they're afraid it's not going to get funded. Right. So everybody, every creator I know always lowballs that goal with the hopes that, okay, if we can you know, crash through this right away, People are going to know, okay, I'm going to back this thing because I know that I'm going to get my comic books because it's already been funded. Right, right. Wow. So, you know, we, Just, we'd love to reach we, we'd love to reach five figures or, you know, more than that, of course. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, I was looking through the, the potential uh, uh, pledges that you can make. Um, you can get the digital versions of two and three. It looks like if you want to get all of them, you need to go to the Master's Trade digital version. It has issue number zero as well as one through five. In there. Right. That'll be released after we get all five issues out because, of course, that's going to compile all five issues and add on that issue number zero, which kind of gives the the prologue before the masters, which kind of gives an inside look into what happened before the masters became the masters. What led to them getting together? Then there's a hardcover. We'll be doing a hardcover and a trade paperback. Both of those will come out once we have all five, you know, individual issues out in everybody's hands. We'll do a final Kickstarter to do additional, you know, people who want uh, hardcovers and trade paperbacks. and Yeah, absolutely. And then there's original art and uh, uh, Bart Sears art packages and Ron Wilson art and Tom Morgan art to, to be had. Oh, yeah. And all kinds of amazing stuff to go on. Some of it's a little out of my price range, but that's good for them. I, you know, somebody I'm sure will come along. And pick up some of those good themes because, oh boy, who wouldn't like some of that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have art from Ron Wilson, numerous things from Ron. We have three different things, four different things from Tom Morgan. We have uh, original cover art from Bart Sears, Stephen Butler, Ron Wilson, Mike Vosberg, uh, Joe Staten, Ramona Fraden, and Mike Grell. Very cool, very cool. Now, you've actually picked uh, something that I've never actually seen in all my time and look at the Kickstarters. Buy your favorite artist a beverage. <laughs> For a $10 contribution, you select the beverage and the artist for which you wish to buy it and buy it for, and we will post a picture of that artist with said beverage toasting you on our Facebook and Instagram social media pages. That's only $10. That's correct. So that's a that that's something. I, see, I'm always drawn to getting your drawn yourself drawn into uh, comics, although yeah. I can almost never afford it. But uh, right. I, I did one time get it in there. Nice. But I'm always interested. This time I'm I've likely, since I don't have issue one, I'm probably going to have to go with that trade. Well, you don't have to go with, with if you don't have issue one. 
what you can do is go with getting issues two and three, and then you can add on the original issue one. So you'd have three comic books in your hands. Hmm. If you go with the trade, you're going to have to wait a couple, two, three months before we come out with the trade. Right, right. Okay. So have you got the whole trade, you know, all, all laid out and ready to go in your head? I'm sure that the art and stuff is going to take a while to get all the everybody all together and doing all that stuff. But have you got this, The who's going to do what, where, and when? Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow, that, yeah, that, that must have been fun in some, some many levels to do to get those things together. And I have worked on an indie comic, so I know what it's like when you get artwork, especially designs of characters. Yeah. Because I was, I was helping with the, uh, an indie book, and we were looking for an artist. And we finally put out, um, uh, we put out requests for a, a certain character. And this one guy turned in a, a, a character sketch, and we just went, wow, that's our guy. That was just an amazing thing. So I can imagine you getting the artwork and stuff. That must be <laughs> that must be a pleasure every time you get brand new art. What's your reaction when you get those things? Well, there's there's no greater feeling than when you wake up in the morning and you fire up the computer and there in your inbox is an email from Alan Weiss or Tom Grummet or Bart Sears or Mike Grell. Or Ramona Frayden. It's just amazing, Wayne. It's just, it's you're like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Now, now, of course, you've got this is your first five issues. You've got you're you're already talking about a second one. Do you have other artists in mind for the second group when the time comes? Yeah. What what we're doing? I mean, once the Masters is over, the Masters is over. There's no, you know, we're not the. I don't have anything in my head of bringing you know, the masters as a team back again. Okay. But what we're thinking of doing are we can, we want to spin off, for example, um, the black owl's fiance, her name is Terry Dane. And she's a public domain uh, um, character that we're actually going to turn into a heroine. She works Hmm. at a detective agency and so on and so forth. We're going to develop her. She's going to have a couple of uh, people working with her, uh, as detectives as, as well that we're going to develop as and have their own individual titles and then like a team title uh, and so on and so forth. And, and with all the different concepts we have, you know, we've, we're putting together ideas for like a monster comic book, uh, uh, an anthology series, kind of like if we took the Twilight Zone TV show and made it into a comic book. Um, and I've approached various artists and I've said, Hey, what would you like to be doing? You have any interest in doing anything more with us? And all of the individual superhero artists have expressed interest in continuing doing an individual title for their hero. Hmm. Um, and then other artists have been interested and expressed interest in doing, you know, different things when it came to um, the other, the other concepts like the, the twilight zone style concept Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Mike Vosberg and I have been working on that. And I know Bob Hall has expressed interest in, you know, doing something with the stories and whatnot. And uh, the monster concept, I threw that at uh, Tom Grummet. And he said, man, you know, I've never done monsters before. That sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. Hmm. So 
you know, Tom Grumman is somebody who I really wasn't familiar with his work before we started working together. And I have to tell you that I have really fallen in love with his style. Um, when, when I wake up and, and there's a page from Tom Grumman, even if it's a rough sketch, it's, it's just a thing of beauty. His work is absolutely fantastic. I have to tell you, I got him to draw a Hawkman for me at a convention once, oh. and I treasure it. It's, 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 it's very dynamic, and yet it's very simple. Right. And I really enjoy that. I'm so glad I got that because uh, I'm a big Hawkman guy as well as a Batman guy. And so for me, I just, boy, when it, when it was done, I couldn't wait to run over to his booth and pick it up. So I bet. Just terrific. Just terrific. Yeah, he is, he is so talented. And, you know, um, he uh, brought into the team Doug Hazelwood uh, hmm. to ink him. And I know he and Doug did a lot of work for DC. I think they teamed up and did a lot of stuff with Superman back in the day. Hmm. Wow! Wow, that's great. So, so man, not only is this going well, but you you're looking to the future as well. So, I, I'm. That's always good to hear because I always like to when when people tell me, well, we can't tell you exactly what we're working on, but we're working on something. I always take great courage in that because if something's going well and you know, and you're starting to move into the future and stuff, I always think that's great. So that's that's a great sign for you, Austin, and that uh, things are moving along and and there's other good things coming from your creations. Well. You know what? A, a wise man once asked me, Austin, do you know why in your car the windshield is so big, but the rear view mirror is so small? <laughs> and he said, because what's in the rear view mirror is in your past, and it's not as important what is in front of you in the future. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm going to be fascinated to see how these things all move up. I'm going to be fascinated. I'll sign up and, and get those three so I can, I can at least read them before the, the collection comes up. But then I'll I'll very likely double dip and get those three books and then get the uh, – the, I'll probably get a paper copy of the of the collected edition just so I can keep it, so I can sit down and read it like a quote-unquote real comic. Stuff. Well, but it, just sounds like you're doing such great stuff and so interesting stuff. Um, that's why you're you're uh, so far ahead, and I hope you do get that uh, that uh, triple decker by the time that uh, the December the sixteenth comes around at twelve oh one a.m. Maybe even beyond that. That would be great to see. I, I hope so as well. God willing, right? Right, right. So it's the Masters number two and number three, a classic hero versus villain comic continues. So if you're like me and you, you manage to miss out on number one, you can catch up on that too. So uh, it just all looks great. The Black Owl, I hope he gets his own series. I'd love to buy four or five different Black Owl comics from different creators. That would be fun to see. Wouldn't that be great? That would be something. Any plans for that? Or are you thinking about that? Or yeah, I mean, it, it would be nice to take the heroes and give them their own, uh, their own titles, you know, uh, or maybe even something like, um, like a, a team up issue, like where we have the Black Owl and somebody one month and the next month there's two other guys together. The next month there's two other guys together, and then maybe like in the fourth month we have like the big power core comes together and, you know, kind of everything, everything is related. Those three comic books are related to each other and they all find out, holy cow, you know, we're, we're going after the same guy here. Does DC own the rights to Brave and the Bold? Oh yeah. Oh, foo. 
I was thinking you could you could resurrect it in your stuff because that would be fun. Yeah, no, I wish I could. It's a great title, and you know they had uh, the animated series, The Brave and the Bold, not too too long ago, maybe ten to fifteen years ago. Right, right, right. Well, it all sounds really great. The Masters is going to be a fun read. I can't wait to see what comes after that. So good luck with it, Austin. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of success and we'll get to see more of the Masters and the other creations you have in the future. Thanks, Wayne. I appreciate you. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne, as a man. Flesh and blood, I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but it's a symbol. Get the latest from the comics universe news, interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics. It's great to welcome to the podcast INJ Colbard, the creator of a really fascinating book and a, and a gripping drama book. And, I, and it can be pronounced a couple of different ways. Salamand is the, I think, the, pref, the preferred, but we in America might say salamander or salamandry. Yeah. That's so, cool. so, how are you doing today, Ian? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's good to talk with you. Why don't you, before we talk about this book, let's talk about what you've done before. What other works have you done before this book? Oh, um, I work for, I do a lot of stuff for 2000 AD. I'm an artist at 2000 AD, so I do a series called Brink with um, with a writer called Dan Abner. I've been working on that for a number of years. I did a series there as well uh, called Brass Sun with um, Ian Edgington. I did a bunch of... Um, adaptations of Lovecraft books for a self-made hero. I did about, I think I did four, four of those. And then um, I did Holmes adaptations for them as well. And started work with Dan Abner years ago, uh, Vertigo in 2012, I think it was. And we did uh, a series called New Dead Wardians for Vertigo. And that's where I first um, started working with Karen, technically, <laughs> by way of other editors, but essentially that's kind of where she got to know who I was. And then, um, and then I've worked with, um, Burger Books, um, uh, on everything, which was a series with Chris Campwell. And we did two volumes of that. And then after that, she came back to me and asked if there was anything I'd want to write as well as draw. And that's how this came about. Um, trying to think what else there's, um, I also did a, a mini series for um, a spin-off from Umbrella Academy, which is uh, "You Look Like Death" with um, with um, oh god, Brian <laughs> Gerard Way and Sean Simon. But um, that was um, a couple of years ago now. Okay. Um, that was uh, oh, and then there was another series called uh, "Wild's End," which is also with Dan Abnett, and that was for Boom. Okay, so quite wow. a lot of stuff, really. Yeah, you've been getting around. That's great. That's all kinds yeah. of good stuff. Now, this book is, as in America, we would say it's part of Dark Horse. Yeah. This Burger Books is like a, a, yeah. a an imprint. Yeah, a Dark Horse. Uh-huh. And yeah, she's doing, of course, she was known for Vertigo in, yeah. in, in, this, in this country. And 
she's doing her own wonderful stuff, which is just great. I, I, I always love her work, and then she always brings to what I think are really challenging and interesting things hmm. to, to, to to press and enjoy. And this book is really great too. To talk about what this book is about, if you would. If somebody doesn't know anything about it, what what should they know? Right, it's about a, a young boy who loses his father and then kind of loses his, you know, he's cartoonist. He draws adventures of his father's adventures and basically he loses the impetus to kind of do that. And his mother sends him abroad um, to go and stay with his grandfather. But he goes to a country that is essentially, it's a, it's a, a regime where they've stamped out art and beauty and stuff like that. So it's a very suppressed artistically, creatively it's a suppressed country and he goes to stay there for the summer. And it's about his journey of coming to terms with his loss and, and things like that over the course of that period of time. And it's based on, although it's set in like a fictional, uh, version of Europe. Um, it's based on my experiences growing up on both sides of the iron curtain. So I spent, you know, I'm half English and half Polish and, I spent my summers over there, and a lot of the incidents that take place in the book are based on actual events that took place, and I've kind of pieced it together to make a story. And a lot of the book sort of explores memory and what that is, and, um, and it explores art and, and things like that. So that's, that's essentially what it's about. So I hear you saying this is kind of uh, somewhat autobiographical. Yeah, definitely semi-autobiographical. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Cool, because so, I really enjoyed it. Now, do you the the son? His his father is sort of the opposite of the son, which is some. There's something about the father son relationship in comics that I'm always fascinated by. I mean, Batman even has his son now. Damian yeah. is in there, and so. What this is, I'm really fascinated by the, the the father is much more of a daring do buckle swash kind of guy, and the son is much more artistic and he's much more reserved. And what's funny is is the way that he looks up to the father. You know, he sees the father as as this guy that he would like to be like, mm-hmm. more like. Was that the way you looked at your father? Yeah. I had um, the funny thing with this book is that um, my parents uh, separated when I was quite young and I'm born in the seventies. And um, so when they split estrangement was very much a part of the deal. We just didn't see our dad again after that experience. And um, so it was kind of trying to piece together things about him that I knew I always knew that I looked like him and, and story. And I heard so many stories about him because there were always big, tall tales about him um, that he kind of embodied those sorts of things in my mind, essentially. So, yeah, I think um, it, it was drawing on a lot of that. Um, so, it's th- so that whole thing of estrangement, um, he's technically not, dead in the beginning of the book because essentially he's in a submarine accident where it sinks to the bottom of the sea. He's just, you can't get to him. You know, he's as good as passed away, but he's not attainable. So he's never going to see his father again is technically what that is. And that drew very much from that real life experience of that kind of loss. So it it did draw on a lot of stuff because I was looking to try and figure out the way that 
memory is effectively, I mean, when we form memories, they're mostly emotions, right? So the more powerful an emotion, the more likely you are to remember something. So fundamentally, memories are emotions. And that's that's one of the things in theirs is that, you know, so it's not about whether something technically really did happen. It's the fact, it's the feeling of that thing. It's the emotional impact that it had is true. Right. The rest around it, I was able to kind of confabulate in the way that like when we remember something, we sort of confabulate that emotion and trying to convey it to somebody else. We tend to add things to the story all the time. Right. You know, when we when we remember things technically on a neurological level, what we do is we restructure the story from scratch every single time. And so it grows and it just changes and, you know, it becomes other things. But fundamentally, at the core, what we're trying to describe to people and convey is an emotion. And that's what I was really interested in doing with this. So I dug deep into things that were quite emotional for me in order to be able to do exactly that. Because at the very beginning, he take, his, the father takes on a kraken mm-hmm. who shows up. And the father... <laughs> He says, uh, in French, he says, excuse me, Mr. Kraken. He says, I brought you a sandwich, a knuckle sandwich. And he punches the the Kraken right in the eye. And, of course, yeah. we find out at, right after that that the, it's the son that is drawing yeah. the adventures of the father. So did that actually happen? Or is he is <laughs> yeah. another thing that he's kind of he's embellishing? It's the kind of the confabulation. It's the, the embellishment of a story. It's like the impact of that. I used to hear a lot of things about the stuff that he got up to um, as he was growing up, uh, you know, and also, you know, while he was working, he worked away on the oil fields in Dubai and stuff like that. So I used to hear all sorts of stuff about adventures in the deserts and things like that. So, you know, they were really, <laughs> they really were tall, big stories. Um, but, um, so it was kind of like a homage to that in that respect of my own father, really. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there's a part when they're having dinner together, the mother and the father and the son, and he starts to talk about the – he has a surprise or something, he says. And when he does, the, the mother says, you're getting a raise. And it turns out that's not what, what was going on. Yeah. And I, I love the son's reaction. You focus a lot on the son's reaction. He's going off to do this thing. And the mother, of course, is like, oh, no, you really shouldn't do that. And the, the son is going, that's the deepest part. That's great. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's all excited about it. But the mother is not. Yeah. And I found that a really interesting thing when uh, – it, did that kind of thing actually happen to your family? Did did uh, your father yeah, go someplace and mother said no or wasn't interested? No, it was, it was not especially that, but it was very much drawing on that kind of when a kid is at a table and it's a three-way conversation. And so essentially you've got the child is like seeing the exciting side of things, but the mother and father are actually talking about the real-world practicalities of the thing at the same time, which sort of sinks it a little bit. But the kid is trying to elevate it back up to – you know, this is really exciting and we should, you know, <laughs> recklessly do it anyway, that kind of thing. It's, it's the, the, the balance of the two. What I was trying to show in those scenes was essentially that you've got this kid who has this like heightened sense of reality and excitement and adventure, but there's a real world implication to all of it. 
like just brushing up against it. There's a, there's a looming threat technically. So yeah, it was, it was drawing on those sorts of things. So Casper is the boy's name in the book mm-hmm. and uh, the mother and he are there. And then in the morning when he wakes up, of course the father's long gone. He's already taken off. And uh, then of course he gets the, the visit that every family dreads. Yeah. Um, people come to tell him that, that there's been an accident. And, and so uh, they assume that he's passed and they used to even have a funeral for him. It's a funeral for um, someone lost at sea. Yeah. So it's, it's not like a proper burial. It's not like a, there's no real sense of closure there because essentially what you're doing is you're committing when they lose people at sea that um, technically the, the words in the service are quite different. So, um, um, because it's, yeah, so it's, it's not quite that he's dead. It's, it's definitely a loss at sea. Yeah. See, it's, it's the type of funeral you have when you, when there's no body basically. But they do that kind of thing, mm. uh, in, in, uh, ocean or water related yeah. things. They, That's right. Cause I've never seen that. And so when I came across it, I was like, That's kind of interesting. I've never seen that before. Yeah. But uh, even if they don't know, they still, if enough time passes, they just kind of consider it a yeah. done deal. And so that's what they did. And, of course, his reaction is different than the mother's. The mother is, tries to console him. Mm-hmm. And being a, the one thing he does right away is he gives up on his art. Doing He's been drawing comics and doing yeah. all kinds of stuff. And because of the loss, it impacts him in such a strong way that he – gives up on doing the artwork and that's a major change in him. Um, now, now the one thing, of course we have to touch on mm-hmm. is the fact that he, the father has a lucky watch. <laughs> yeah. And he manages to get out the door without it. And that's a, you know, and the son kind of figures it's because he didn't take the watch that bad things happened. Yeah. Which I, I thought was really because, you know, there, there is something in a child that feels responsibility for what happens. I think it's also as an adult, when you're grieving, it's part of the process where you essentially, you bring in almost like supernatural elements to um, being able to rationalize this irrational moment in your life, you know. So there'll be things like, I should have done this, or, the, you know, this, when you're in that part of the grieving process, I reckon. And it, so it's very much, it plays on that as well. So it's, it, it, and that's the bit where it's the childlike understanding of something. I think grief does that. It reverts us back to a childlike state in a sense, because we feel vulnerable and, you know, we've had that loss and stuff. So I think that, yeah, that's very much plays on that, I think. And then there's a shift in, in the story and the fact that the, the mother sends off uh, uh, the son to go and stay with his grandfather. Yeah. And so there's characters in this book that are based on real people. And there's other characters, just not there are amalgams of lots of people that I knew and stuff, but the two ones that are distinctly, definitely people that, you know, in my past were the father and the grandfather and the grandfather was very much my grandfather in Poland. And the, the, the name for that is Janik. When you say, grandfather in Polish is Jalek, so my head is always Jalek, but so if I say that by mistake, then that's who I'm talking about. Okay. He's very much based on him. Right from the moccasins on his feet to the snapdragons in his pockets, he's exactly that guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when he's on the way there, he meets a guy on uh, uh, while he's traveling. He meets a, a, a rather heavyset guy, mm-hmm. and he they, he befriends him, which is kind of interesting. Uh, he needs yeah. help during the, the 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 journey, and the guy decides to go ahead and help him. Mm-hmm. And that's not the last time we see this guy. Interesting too. They they referred to ghost station and whether there be ghosts and stuff. Yeah. Like that. So in Berlin, when I was traveling through Berlin, that was pretty much, I think that's what they used to call it. I heard it referred to as a ghost station at the time, I think. And um, and I like the double connotation of that at the same time. Um, but, it, but the reason they call it that is because essentially it's not a train that stops like a normal train. So it's a, it will go straight through and they have passenger port control on the, on the actual station. The one we used to pull into... It was similar. Um, they did actually used to board this train and search the, you know, the couchettes and stuff, you know, cabins that you're in and stuff. Um, there was a couple of times where, and we always seemed to hit at midnight. That was the weird thing about that, that experience was we'd get to the ghost station at midnight and then beyond midnight from the, from the West to the East in the West, it was all neon lights and bright and, you know, that side of Berlin once you got across to the east, it was pitch black till dawn. You know, you'd see the odd lights in a little station as you were going past, but that's about it. And so it was very much like it did feel like you were going across a veil into somewhere else once you went through. And it's in, this is the same city. And um, that's that's my recollection of it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it very much plays on that. And the, I, Yeah. I get a kick out of the grandfather, though. He he's quite the character. He is. Yeah. He's he's when they first get meet up and, and, and when he gets where he's going, there's a guy that's go, trying to give tickets to people who yeah. may not have paid the party. <laughs> yeah, and the grandfather distracts him so they can take off without, I guess, not to pay. And and the guy's waving his fist at him, and the grandfather's laughing as he goes away. Yeah. And as they drive, of course, he's not the greatest driver in the world. And no. he's having fun as they're driving along and they get to where they're going to stay. And they, he meets the family. Are, are the family very much? Because you've got the family, family dynamic is similar in structure to family that did live. In actual fact, the geographical location of that, the shack the grandfather lives in is identical to the one I actually visited him in. Oh, wow. And across the way, that house is I it's pretty much the same house and that distance between the two properties is the same. And it's like, so I'd mapped it exactly on my memory of that place, obviously, but the family there in reality, there was a great aunt that lived there. Um, but there were two sets of, um, first cousins and, you know, cousins and <laughs> whatever the structure is, I've forgotten now, uh, and living in that property, there were two lots of them. So it was, I said, what I did was, I kind of amalgamated that family kind of from other members of the family and stuff like that from lots of different aunts would make up that one aunt and that kind of thing. So I just, I used the opportunity there to kind of uh, make those people. They're very much amalgams. They're not anybody specific at all, but um, yeah, they're pretty much different people, but, uh, but the situations that arose are pretty, pretty much they're very similar to real life occurrences mm-hmm. now casper of course who who doesn't really want to do this in the first place when he gets there to meet them is rather standoffish mm. 
they try to involve him in stuff and he just kind of all he does <clears throat> interestingly enough he sits and listens to the the watch ticking yeah a lot and that's kind of he draws some comfort and then of course we find out that the grandfather is listening to the radio and somebody is reading numbers and he's writing them down yeah yeah and we kind of, we find out a little bit about that. I found out I couldn't figure out what that was all about and then of course he dreams about the the underwater, of course, where the father is, is supposed yeah. to vanish. And the thing that really interested me was that he, you know, Casper talks to a guy, mm-hmm. and it was like a government official. And he, being a kid, he doesn't know how much he should say and how much he shouldn't. Yeah, and it kind of gets the grandfather in trouble. Which mm-hmm. I think, boy, if you're a kid, haven't haven't we as kids said stuff that we shouldn't have? Yeah. And then it comes back to haunt, and the adults say, "You said what? Oh no, you didn't say that." And so those kinds of things go on. But but the the critical person that we meet is the it's an aunt, I believe is is the name. What, what's her name though? The woman who's the artist. Oh no, she's not. Re- she's not a relative. Uh, that's Melisande, and she okay. lives in um, the station house. She's an artist that lives out in the station house. She's just a friend. Yeah, and she's a. She was actually a friend of the family. That's actually based on somebody, but only in respect of the fact that she did our family portraits. Because um, my grandmother used to keep her employed doing exactly that. <laughs> well, not keep her employed, but. She paid for all these family portraits because this was a, a friend that was of hers, and then um, and she, when we used to go and sit for her, um, you'd go to the studio and there were cats everywhere. So you you would go to sit down and there'd be a cat on the seat and things like that. So the, that's very much drawn on her. Mm-hmm. But what her character is, she's again she's an amalgam because i just have like a vague memory of this person i don't really remember the the actual character of her so i plowed into this character every single art teacher i think i ever had is is funneled through this individual Mm -hmm. and so yeah she's drawing on a lot of experiences from art education fundamentally well i got a kick because delphine the the cousin says you know casper is an artist like you (laughs) but then immediately he volunteers i don't do art anymore yeah. And then right. she asks a really important question. She says, why, what happened? Did you lose your muse? Yeah. And I thought that was a, and the interesting thing is he doesn't respond. Yeah. But she turns and looks at him with a knowing look and she says, I'm sorry for your loss. He doesn't have to say it. She understands yeah, exactly. that he has lost his yeah. his muse. And I thought that was that was a really telling and dramatic moment that I really enjoyed. I just, particularly when she turns and looks at him yeah. and there's still nothing said, nothing needs to be said. She completely understands what's, what's going on. And I thought, wow, that was a real mm. uh, dramatic and important moment. I think it was great for him because I don't think he understands exactly, Casper does, how important that is, but she does. And she, yeah give some sympathy for that. And I thought that that really was a turning point yeah. for Casper. <clears throat> somebody who understood what he was going through. I thought that was great. I think it's like um, one of the things about memory, you know, when, when we go over memories and stuff like that, we're not telling things as they actually were. We're telling a story of how actually something felt. And often that's what you're doing with art. 
Um, you're you're trying to convey the emotion of something. You're trying to convey how something feels. So you're not really drawing a bowl of fruit because, the, and it's just a boring bowl of fruit that has light on it, it has color, it has emotion in it, it has something that it's trying to convey. That's the artist's. That's the artist's role in that. So the artist is always very aware of it, it, the artist's only duty is to truth. So the artist is looking for emotion and things all the time. So it's one of those things about her that she's able to. That doesn't mean that all artists are very empathetic, but it just means that she sees it in him straight away, just as she would do if she was trying to convey some other emotion and something else that she was looking at. So, yeah. Right. It's Um, really, that, that was to me, a turning point in the book. I I really was, you know, I I was very surprised that somebody that empathetic could understand and gone through, maybe she had gone through that herself or she understood that kind of thing. And so, that, that to me was really something uh, that's great very dramatic uh, this this book is not i should tell people right away this is not a superhero book this is much more of a dramatic uh personal kind of study mm-hmm. and i i like it for that I, i'm somebody who loves a lot of variety in my reading yeah and good. so for me i i as much as i love my superheroes and my long john stuff i like other kinds of stories and this drew me in yeah. And I was very gripped by the different people and how they reacted to different things mm. and what was going on around them and, and how they reacted to that. Mm-hmm. And that's not the only time that, that uh, Casper sees uh, the artist. Uh, the leash. He goes back and she says, you can stay if you don't get in my way. Yeah. But, but he, he doesn't necessarily do that. Uh, although he does stay for a while. Yeah, yeah which is kind of interesting to see. And then she talks about her own experiences, which was, I thought really good. And then it touches something in her and she, she starts to have an emotional moment mm. and she says, well, you should go. Yeah. Because it's, it's bringing something out that she didn't really want to face, I guess at that point. Yeah. And so he goes off and. See that there, right there is the engagement of memory, which evokes emotion. Mm-hmm. Because that's fundamentally what it is. So, yeah, absolutely. It was something. She's looking at something, and all of a sudden, a tear starts to run. Yeah. And then that's when she says that he should go because she, she can't quite deal with it at that point. Mm. And now there's something interesting going on as far as the family. The government apparently is not much for, as you, as you mentioned, the government's not much for art or artists. Mm. And so as, as the family goes along and they – they do something really that fascinated me. They sing and do music, but they do it in silence. Yeah. yeah. Because they don't dare make music because the government, if, if the government hears that, would, would throw them in jail or something. Yeah. So that, I thought that was such an interesting sequence where there's imaginary notes and stuff all floating in there and they're dancing and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I thought that was so interesting that even – if they have to keep it quiet, they still want to enjoy the music. Yeah. I, I, that was such an interesting development. In there. And it touches uh, uh, him in that way, too, the boy. And he's, you know, he's drawn into it all, even though, and he sees the imaginary music just like everybody else does. Mm. It's just uh, all these really interesting, dramatic moments. You know that 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 who would ever imagine you'd be able to, as a group, imagine music and do it in silence? I mean, I I 
I can't imagine how they did that. You ever seen those uh, videos where there's, there was one uh, recently where there's a guy gets up in front of an entire uh, audience and he turns the audience into a choir. Essentially he gets into, you know, it's like do re mi scales of going up and down in notes, but then he gets them all to sing. And it's just amazing seeing a crowd, an individual doing it is one thing, but seeing a whole crowd instinctively move with just the raising and lowering of his arms, the people collectively know what the note is they're supposed to hit. And these are non-musical people. These people are not necessarily musical people, I should say. And well, they're in the audience, and it's just instinctively moving with it, you know. And I, I kind of – that was a little bit of that, I guess, in there as well. Now, there was an interesting experience recently. There was uh, over in Germany, interestingly enough, they hmm. had an American football game. Yeah. Two teams went over there and played. And what they did at one point was they played some American music. Yeah. And they particularly played uh, – one of the things I saw, I saw a video of uh, John Denver's uh, Take Me Home Country Roads. Yeah, yeah. And the whole stadium started to sing – yeah. along with that and it was even the the announcers were moved yeah by that kind of thing and i've been in a place where i've sung because i sing in choir and stuff like that mm. and i've been in a place i was in a church where there was a, a great uh reverb in the church and when you sang you could yeah. hear the sound go rush 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 down the building and there's there's something about that and even when you imagine it it's very compelling, and yeah. that was the, that's what the kind of experience that the family had. And I was just, I thought that was so, yeah, so they, wonderful. They're not necessarily artistic people either, but everybody has the capacity for it. Is the way I look at it. When somebody comes up to me at a convention and they say, you know, I can't draw, I don't agree with that. I think if you can sign your name, you can draw. <laughs> like you just don't draw the way that you would like to draw, maybe, but you mm -hmm. can draw. Everybody can draw. I sort of, you know, that's the thing where I sort of think that people tell themselves they can't do something. You should allow yourself to do something. I think mm -hmm. if you're telling yourself you can't do something, definitely give yourself a break and allow yourself to do something because everybody yeah. has the capacity for that completely. Mm -hmm. See, I face that kind of thing as as as, as I, I write reviews and I'm interested in storytelling, but I, I don't consider myself a writer. Right. In that sense, I, if I write stories, they're very blah, yeah. very standard stuff. And I, I, I can tell you what's a good story. If I come across, I say, that's what made that story good. But for me to come up with those, I can't do. And so I struggle with that as well. So I could relate to all these things. I thought that was a really interesting, it was a great thing to, to go through that with them and to kind of realize that. Yeah, maybe I, 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 I'm still every once in a while, I think I should get back to writing and try to write stories that are better than what I've done in the past. But so I, I could relate to all these things that the yeah. family was going through. And and, and the character the, Delphine, she wants to be a writer. Yeah. Yeah, but she doesn't, she's kind of not sure because it's like <laughs> at the start of it because she doesn't have that impetus really. To mm -hmm. She kind of doesn't feel like she could. She has no self-confidence really to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't want to spoil too much more because I think people really ought to read the book. <laughs> but we've got we we're, we're I just want to tell you it's a very dramatic, it's a very moving, and it's engaging. 
is yeah. the ways that I would put it. Because the people are, are uh, uh, let's just say that Casper comes across some other situations yeah. that are, uh, there's consequences to what he's done. Yeah. And he faces some of those and we get to face some of those with him. And there's a, uh, <laughs> oh, I'd love to spoil some of this stuff. There's some <laughs> really wonderful things. That, there are some wonderful things that happen. And there's, there's particularly as we get towards the end, there's a big surprise to me. Yeah. That, that I dare not spoil. But let me tell you, I, I when I read it, I gasped. When I yeah. Across this, I, I love that. There's oh gosh, I'd love to spoil that, but I just can't. It, it's just if <laughs> if if you think you know where the story is going, I can guarantee it. You don't. Yeah. Good. Because <laughs> I sure didn't. I I you know I boy I. I Do you know the funny thing when I wrote this originally, um, the original idea for this? Well, it was born out of the fact that when I had an idea that I was doing a working with Karen on this thing and I'd, I'd done a, a breakdown of the whole idea and it was in the breakdown process. The idea completely fell apart right? and I just sat there and just went, Oh, this is a mess. What am I going to do? And so that was, that book was a no go. I kind of thought I had a book and then I didn't have a book and within, and I, I, I called my sister up and I said, I'm stuck here. I need to tap into emotion and stuff like that. I need to be able to sell the emotion really get into the emotion. So she said, well, that's, it's the old adage of write what you know and stuff like that. So she said, um, take an incident from your childhood that was pretty big. And uh, because it was full of those, we had quite a lot of those and use that as your finale and then work backwards through the story from that. And I did exactly that. And so mm-hmm. The, the finale that takes place in this, without talking about it in a really vague way so we don't spoil it, but fundamentally it's the, the environment that it was in, the circumstances, the, the choices a grown adult makes that make you question why would you do that. Um, that was where the book started, really. And I worked backwards from there, knowing in hindsight what I know about certain individuals, um, I kind of was able to piece things together. I had like a murder wall where I turned around and would just pin things up and just go, okay, this connects to this. And I did it within, and the thing I wrote was within, it was the one day where I just lost the previous book. And then I basically sat down that day and wrote this from scratch and starting at the end, writing what I know. And I wrote that within 24 hours, I'd had it turned around. I worked through the night, which I had, you know, I'm, 50 now i don't do that very often but i couldn't let go of the story and the story couldn't let go of me so i i was awake and i was just i remember the thing that kept me awake was the melisson stuff there's the art the artist in it that was the stuff that really kept me awake but uh, but because i was trying to write stuff about her and but i was um i got to like five in the morning and i was just too tired (laughs) i went to bed but i'd written it and then the following morning, I gave it to my wife to say, read this and just tell me uh, what you think. And she cried when she'd read it. <laughs> she wow. say that. But she got very emotional about it because she understood the context of what I was writing about and why I was writing it and stuff. I went, great. That's all I need to know is that on an emotional level, it works for other people as well as it works for me. Wow. And then I gave it to Karen and it was straight away, it, you know, it got commissioned immediately. So, 
Yeah. Um, it was, a, it was a, and it was a full outline. It wasn't like a, a, a page pitch or whatever, or it was like about 12 pages or something like that. And it, it was a full outline, like a, a breakdown of the whole thing. You know, uh, one of the things uh, in comics that, that always drives me crazy is that yeah. stories often don't end or yeah. if they do end, they don't end well. Yeah, start at the end is a really start at the end, write what you know. Two solid bits of advice. <laughs> See, this, <laughs> this, really work. this book, the ending is gripping. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful ending. I when I got to it, I, I was moved, I do have to say. Yeah. I don't know if I, the tears <laughs> hit me, but uh, let's just say it, certain things happen. Yeah. And I was like, oh, all right. I'm so happy to see that. And oh. it's so nicely done. I mean, it's, uh, let's just say that it, it's, you know, you talk about, and then there was parts too where, I uh, see, I can't, I don't want to spoil it. If I see any of that stuff, it's going to spoil yeah. it. Don't worry. The, the thing that's, that, that's really interesting is that I was very touched yeah, I, I was happy that the, the people, um, you know, Casper and his uh, evolution mm. was really strong. And, and I, I just it, it, it's something that I, I don't think we get enough of. We don't relate to characters mm. as much as we should. But this book really does a beautiful job of yeah. pulling us in. And identifying with the characters, and if we don't identify with them, we can understand a mm. lot of what they're going through. And yeah, exactly. it, it's it's a very touching story. It's it it made me really. I, I couldn't once I started, I couldn't stop. I just had mm. to get to and see when I got to the end. And when I got to the end, you know, I, I'd like to see more about Casper. In the future, <laughs> I mean, if there's other Casper stories, I would I would like to be able to read them. Yeah. But it ends in such a way that it comes to an emotional stopping point. Let's say, yeah, we Absolutely. we you get this beautiful conclusion that mm. I wish other comics would get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, because I like I said, this is how often comics are are meant to keep you buying from month to month, and so they can't really come to a stopping place yeah but this one does and this one really like i said it touched me and i all i can say is is that i i it's you're saying this is your first writing this is is the first uh i've adapted stuff before i did have a book before called celeste that came out uh 2012 this is the first one that like um uh and uh, yeah, I've I've written before, absolutely. But it was because, um, and also before I did comics, I, I worked on film and TV. I used to write for um, different companies like Ardman and BBC and stuff like that. I, I used to be a development writer, so nothing that ever. <laughs> yeah, I was in development mm-hmm. hell, basically. Well, <laughs> as a developer writer. So I'd I'd work on projects that would be pitches and things like that, and building show bibles and mm-hmm. stuff like that, so that people could market those things and and. Uh, um, so I've got a long experience of writing in that, in those terms. So wow. structure and things like that's always really important for me. Um, mm-hmm. well, this, this works so yeah. well. I have to say that, uh, it, it just, it, it resonated in me. Yeah. Superbly. Really? When I got to the, and I was a little worried about it when I started, you know, sometimes yeah. stories about kids are not necessarily ones that adults can relate to. No. 
you know, but this one is one I think anybody of any age can really read this and really understand what's yeah. going on. So I, I highly recommend if you're in the mood for, for a little variety in your reading mm. and you're in the mood for something that is really touching and uh, dramatic in the way that, that that's a good way. Mm. I, I would say this book is just a great one to pick up. This is with the holidays coming and stuff. If, if somebody uh, is, is looking for something good to read, I, I would say this is a great book to pick up. And and give it to somebody who likes to read, or maybe somebody who doesn't, and get them into reading because it's something really special in the sense that it that it's going to it's going to take you places that I haven't seen a comic take me before. So and mm. I've been reading comics for a long, long time, mm. for decades, and so this book really is is very memorable to me, and it's going to be something that I hope other people read it and get the same reaction because it was just. You know, special people, we get to know these people like they're real. And, you know, like they were real in your lives. They become real to us because yeah. of the book. And I, I, it's just a well-done book. I just, I hope a lot of people buy it. I hope it's a big success because, man, this is, I, I actually hope this becomes a movie or a TV show or something. <laughs> there's a lot of wonderful, there's a lot of wonderful stuff to this. This is very this is engaging. I like, use the word I keep using, but it really works. All the mysteries are explained by the end, and but we, the the people, we. I, I really, I feel sad when certain things happen at the end. Yeah, uh, certain people are starting. Things are changing, and I was just kind of like, I'm really sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's a well told story. It's something that God, I wish more comics did. It is it's the kind of a thing that I think anybody could really read, uh, mm. younger kid all the way through adult like me. And so I have to congratulate you. I think this is a wonderful, Thank wonderful book. Much. I just I, 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 I hope it's a big success. I really do, because, boy, we need more of this kind of stuff, I think. <laughs> That's great. It's well, I'm working on another one with Karen. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say anything about that. But, yeah, I'm already working on something else for her. So hopefully there'll be more to explore already i hope so because boy this one was was very touching and very uh the, the, the it's a kind of book that that if you're used to superhero books you're going to be a little surprised by how it, how it, it reaches you mm. you know because we i'm so used to punching and kicking and you know people in bright costumes and stuff but i didn't need any of that in this no. this this was a very uh an emotional journey as opposed to like I think when you have something that's a lot of action, if you don't have action, you have to have acting. That's the thing. Mm. The characters have got to be doing something. They've got to be conveying things in a story in a certain way. And I think it's important. You can, I do firm believer, you can have a, you know, a, a book with very little action um, or some action, but the important thing is somebody conveying something. You know? What's dramatic? The, the dramatic moments, like I talked about that one, sequence and there are sequences in there that are very dramatic and i i feel like i'm there with them yeah great which is just a uh, i i not every comic does that to me but this one really did you know i i'm, I'm kind of like what happened to these people now and they, like i said another casper book would be fun to read but the, uh, again this ends in a very satisfying way that I, I, I wish more comic readers would read this one and realize this is how you 
conclude the story. This is how to do it. So it's a brilliant book. It's as, as people over in the UK like to say, it's brilliant. Um, <laughs> again, it's called Salamandra. And, and I would, I highly recommend it. it it's such a great book in the sense that it, it's something new for me that uh, to go through this, this, this person's younger life and to have it be that really any age could read it. I really like that. I thought that was yeah. something special. So I, I have to congratulate you. I think it's just a wonderful book. It's just terrific. So I uh, hope now you said they got, you've got other projects coming. Are there other things that you're doing that we should be aware of? Um, Brink at the moment is that's ongoing. Um, we're on book five. We're working on book six, but there's five books of that already. Wow. Uh, that's from 2000 AD. And that's there's five collected books. It, it appears like a weekly for a chunk of the year. And then it gets collected up. I think there's a trade now, actually, right now as well, at the same time as this. And that's uh, book five is out now. So yeah, that's, that's uh, that that presently is me up to date. Yep. Well, great, great. Now, if people want to follow you on social media and keep up with you, how do they do that? I'm on Twitter, whatever that means today. <laughs> so I am there. Um, with uh, just an, I don't think I have a tick. No, I don't have a tick. I never got one. <laughs> but I am there, and I am me. So uh, if there's there a there tick version, that's not me. <laughs> is there a name that we look for on Twitter, or what's the, what's your handle? Ing Colbert. Okay, and it's the yeah. It's, I tend to. I don't post that much actually. I'm not not much of a social media person. I don't have a website either. I'm. Incredibly difficult to find. <laughs> well, you know, I guess the important thing is to read the books and, and yep. uh, keep up with that and stuff like that. So, uh, again, I have to highly recommend this book. It, it is, it's something that is, I, I, it's going to take you places that you likely have not gone before. And for me, I, I love that kind of variety in my reading. And so, this for me was was something I, I was very special. I'm going to reread it a couple of times just to. I'm sure there's lots of little nuances that are there that I might have wished I had gotten, but I didn't get. But uh, I got the high points, and I really enjoyed it. And I want to go back and, and, and delve more into it because it's the kind of book you can read much more than once. And yeah. that's always a great thing. I, I love books to do that to me that make me want to come back and reread it. So, again, it's called Salamand. And it's, I guess I, we spell it just for people who may not understand. It's like salamander, but the R and E are flipped around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll find uh, it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's something special. So all I can tell you is, Ian, that's, you, you did something great with this book. And I hope we get to read a lot more from you in the future. So please keep yeah. it up. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Be back next time. We'll have another great interview with another terrific comics creator. But until then, keep reading your comics.